in connection with the question, what do we know about the truthfulness of God from the Bible, we proceed to consider a ninth objection which has been raised against the truthfulness and consistency of the Bible. It is objected that the use that many make of the word justification in speaking of the way of salvation contradicts the idea of forgiveness of sins so strongly set forth in the Bible. If such a full import is to be placed on the word justification, then the New Testament is at variance with itself, which may contribute toward not accepting its absolute truthfulness. Or we may put it this way, if sins are dealt with in strict judicial justification, why does the Bible so continually speak of the forgiveness of sins? There is certainly a basic difference between being saved by strict judicial justice and being saved by the forgiveness of sins, or by God's relaxation of his claim against us out of his benevolent kindness. If both are pressed to their ultimate meanings, that is, the terms justification and forgiveness, an objection is raised against the true consistency of the Bible. Let us consider first the term justify as defined in our secular usage. It means to administer justice or to execute justice upon. It is the opposite of leniency and compromise and has nothing to do with mercy. It means to adjust or arrange exactly, to pronounce free from guilt or blame, or to absolve. It is to prove or show one to be just, to vindicate, to maintain or defend as conformable to law, right, justice, or duty. Justification would then be the administration or execution of justice the act of justifying or state of being justified. By the use of the words justify and justification in connection with salvation in the Bible, it is not claimed by such that anyone is so dealt with on the basis of his own life, for salvation deals with guilty sinners, but on the basis of a twofold literal an exact imputation. It is first claimed that the penalty of the sinner is literally imputed to Christ so that in his death the Lord Jesus suffered exactly and precisely what the sinners for whom he died deserved to suffer. We have seen that this view of the atonement of Christ unconditionally secures the discharge of penalty and guilt. Thus, if Christ died for all men in the same sense, then all would be saved. But we know from observation and from the Bible that all men are not being saved. Therefore, we may with certainty conclude that the atonement of Christ was not of the nature of a literal an exact payment of the penalty of anyone's sins, 
but was a grand and blessed governmental measure which makes the forgiveness of sins possible by a loving God. But if so, we cannot infer the strict justification of a soul on the basis of the atonement. But it is affirmed also that the righteousness of Christ or the obedience of Christ is literally imputed to those who are saved, so that God does not view them as they actually have been and are, but views them as credited with the righteousness of Christ. Now there is a wonderful and blessed relationship with Christ in salvation by which we benefit immensely, which we shall be discussing presently. But by no means could his obedience be credited to believers because the Lord Jesus was under obligation to obey for himself. In Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 to 6, we read about this obligation that Christ assumed. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God had sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So here we see that the Lord Jesus was made under the law. So he had obligation to fulfill the righteous requirements of God over humanity, and certainly he was a part of humanity. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, we read what Moses set forth from God as to the reasonable requirements of God. Now our Lord Jesus, we may be positively certain of, was aware of these passages. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? This is certainly an important and pertinent question. And certainly the same was required of our Lord Jesus Christ as to his humanity as is required of you and I. But to fear the Lord, the scripture goes on, thy God, to walk in all his ways and to love him and serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. We notice in these last words that the commandments of God were a loving gift unto mankind not to be oppressive, but to be a manifestation of that walk and pathway of life that would be for man's good. That's what the Word of God says, that the gracious law of God was given for man's good, not for his hurt, not for his unhappiness. And the reasonable law of God requires all to fear or have a reverential attitude toward God and to walk in the ways of God, to love God and serve God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Now our Lord Jesus interpreted these words in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, where we read, 
Master, there was a lawyer that came and asked him this most important question. Which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. And this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So the Lord Jesus affirmed that all men were under obligation to put God supreme in their lives and to put their fellow men equal with themselves. So our Lord Jesus, as one of us, was under the same obligation to love God supremely with all his heart and to love his fellow men as himself. We know it's the happy revelation of the New Testament that the Lord Jesus did just this and fulfilled completely his obligation. But we should be sure we understand that our Lord Jesus could do no more than love the Father with all his heart and his fellow men as himself. He could certainly not accrue to himself nor to us any deposit of obedience that might uh, come to our credit. But inasmuch as our Lord always fulfilled his obligation and could ask his opposers, which of you convinceth me of sin? He was not under condemnation as you and I have been or are, and therefore was free to die for our sins and for the sins of the whole world, since he was not under condemnation for his own sin. Therefore all of his obedience was for himself. Salvation by strict, forensic, or judicial justification, therefore, cannot be true and cannot be said to be so stated in the Bible. But as the second remark, we call attention to the fact that the universal and common word throughout the Bible describing the manner of God saving his soul from penal consequences of sin is that of forgiveness or its equivalent upon repentance and confession, of course. To forgive is to give, to give over, to resign, to cease to feel resentment against one on account of wrong committed, to give up a rightful or just claim against anyone, to pardon or remit the penalty against anyone. Thus we see that while strict justification involves no relaxation of anything, but insists on precise exactness, forgiveness embodies the idea of mercy and compassion. The one who has been wronged faces this just claim that he has in his experience, and out of benevolent love, simply dispenses with it. It is the exceeding riches of the Bible that God is therein revealed as abounding in willingness to forgive. In 1 John 4, 8, we read that God is love in his very essence, by which we are to understand that God is perfectly benevolent or his disposition is one of goodwill toward all. In the 86th Psalm and verse 5 we read, For thou, Lord, art good, and ready to forgive, 
and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. What a wonderful declaration this is. In the second chapter of Ephesians, we have the lovely statement that God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. So the Bible reveals the wonderful fact that God, by virtue of the richness of his love and mercy, is willing to forgive. But there are other problems, and we shall have to continue this in our next visit together. May we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the revelation of the Bible, thy precious word, that thou art a great God of love and kindness, and that thou art willing to forgive if we will only repent of sin, come by faith to the cross of Christ, and be reconciled to thee. We pray that many may so respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we are happy to offer, free of charge, to all listeners of radio station KGEI, a booklet by your teacher on this Faith of Our Fathers broadcast, entitled, God Wants Revival, Do We? We are sure you will be interested in this presentation of many important facts relating to the way of salvation. We offer to send this booklet without charge to anyone in the world who will send a letter asking for it. Your announcer will give you the correct mailing address right today. 